Welcome, guys. Today on Growth Chats, we have Ray Joyce, a technology growth equity investor at Declaration Partners, real estate investor, New Yorker, motorcycle enthusiast, and all-around amazing guy. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks, Max. Good to, good to be here, and you're uh, too kind as usual. All right. We're, we're going to start off here with a couple rapid-fire questions. You ready? Yep. Let's get into it. Okay. Most interesting investment area in tech right now? That's a really good question. Um, if I had to give a one-way answer, probably ESG and climate-related tech investing. Okay. Crypto, bull or bear? Bull, for sure. Real estate, do you focus on cash flow or appreciation? Which, which matters more to you? Appreciation for the tax benefits, um, cash flow for my personal spending habits. Okay. <laughs> and then most important habit that you practice on a daily basis? Physical fitness, just getting to the gym a few days a week or staying active um, really changes the game for a, a lot of the a day to day or a lot of the week. Awesome. Thanks, Ray. I wanted to start off with those questions to set the stage for listeners on some of the topics we'll be discussing later on today. So listener, yes, you, if any of those topics interest you, stay tuned because you're in for some extremely interesting content and, and hopefully some helpful information as well. Um, so with that being said, Ray, can you briefly explain your job to the audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm a, a vice president at Declaration Partners. We are a private equity fund focused on a few areas, growth equity, where I spend most of my time, real estate, private equity investing. And then there's a sister organization where we're pursuing lower middle market buyout opportunities. But in particular, I spend most of my time in the growth equity world investing in private software businesses. And so that ends up being companies from Series B stage to Series D, Series E, generally writing checks from $15 million upwards to about $70 million. My focus is enterprise software more broadly, but I spend time in areas such as cybersecurity, workflow automation or efficiency, developer tools, DevOps, and um, a few other areas as well that we're exploring, such as vertical software, e-commerce enablement. Interesting. Very cool. So what have you been focused on work uh, recently? I've been doing a, a deep dive for the past few weeks into this e-commerce enablement category, sort of starting with the, the Shopify ecosystem and understanding what software tools are really supporting the pre ad and post-purchase motions. You can think of those as getting to the store, being at the store, checking out, and then leaving the store. And it's a really unique time, I think, coming out of of COVID when so many brick and mortar locations shifted online, they just hyper accelerated so many trends in e-commerce and it's still a small percentage of overall retail today, but one that I think is going to be really, really important both in the US and, and globally. And so a lot of my time over the past month has been understanding where the different players are, what some of the, the new entrants in the market are and, and how they're going about innovation and then driving adoption through technology. There's a really unique category we've come across that has been around since 2018, 2019, but I think gaining a lot of steam called Headless Commerce. And effectively, it is this developer framework of decoupling your front end and your back end for storefronts and for e-commerce businesses. So if you take a company like H&M, um, traditionally stores like H&M and, and businesses would create the website front end and the checkout payment processing order management backend within the same code base. And one developer would make all of those pieces, both UX, UI and, and underlying foundational technology. Um, 
which has led to a lot of complexities, a lot of issues with website slowdowns. If you ever tried to get a sneaker release from Foot Locker or from Nike and the website freezes, a lot of times it's because of those issues. And so now there's this idea of development engineering called headless commerce where there is a separate backend, which is your checkout system, your payment processing, your order management, and a separate front end, which is basically the storefront or the web app or the mobile app, the, the UX UI. And so these are connected now by API layers instead of being part of the same underlying code base. And so it becomes very easy to change just one or two aspects of that. I can tweak the front end. I can speed that up. I can customize that for Max or for Ray. I can improve the back end. I can outsource the back end and just use Shopify or Stripe for that. And so it's giving a lot of smaller merchants a lot more power and a lot more flexibility. And I think net net, it's just one of the ways that e-commerce enablement becomes a bigger piece of the story for a lot of these traditional retailers. Very cool. So are these like Shopify plugins or is it kind of a, a bunch of different use cases and different areas that, that these uh, pieces can be, can be worked into? Yeah, it's, it's really broad. Um, I'd say Shopify is sort of the 800 pound gorilla and that everyone's familiar with that business. And, you know, companies are on Shopify from mom and pop storefronts to figs, which is the, um, the fashion brand for, for nurses and doctors and physicians. And so Shopify has a very wide reaching span of products. And I, I think where a lot of these tools come in are one, to support that Shopify ecosystem. And so the ability to plug in, to partner with Shopify and other solutions that are similar, but also to provide some disruption. Um, Shopify has been a phenomenal growth story. I think if you were a public market investor at IPO, you're up over 67 times your original investment. And a lot of people are very happy about that, but there's still a lot of room to grow in terms of innovation. Um, there's still long tail merchants that don't necessarily have tools that work very well for them. And there are people that aren't the ideal customer for Shopify, even in today's world. So part of it is understanding the solutions of plugins and where businesses can partner and you know really leverage Shopify's existing merchant base. But part of it is also thinking about what has Shopify done well and what hasn't Shopify done well. And you know, one example of that is um, Shopify doesn't do a great job of providing analytics for merchants. So if I have a storefront and I want to perform a cohort analysis or I want to understand, you know, where my repeat purchasers are coming from or what's really driving reorder volume over time. It's a bit harder to do that in Shopify. And so there's this sort of subcategory of e-commerce enablement that's data analytics and visualization tools that have come up. And these are purpose-built for the e-commerce segment. Obviously, as a small to medium-sized business, you live and die by customer satisfaction and just understanding where your customers are, what their purchasing behaviors are, and, and everything else around that. So the ability to sort of gain advantages at the margin and say Shopify can perform X, Y, and Z really well, but not necessarily ABC, creates a, a really unique playing field for new entrants, for existing entrants who can pivot, but also for just further development of that category more broadly. How do you go from finding an intriguing company or investment area to actually honing in on the specific company that you want to invest in and then making that investment? It's a good question. Um, there are a few different ways to go about it. And I, I've done several across my career. Um, one is sort of top down, which I'm in the process of doing with this e-commerce enablement deep dive, where you take a broad understanding of the category and narrow that down into a framework of what the value proposition is or how to move from 
point A to point B to point C, which companies are performing that, which companies are providing the underlying foundational layer. And then from there, what you think is most interesting, where you think some of the investment opportunities arise. And, and what inevitably ends up happening is some areas are pretty fully baked out, right? So the example of, of Shopify, would I invest in a Shopify competitor today that's a private business? Probably not, unless there's a unique angle, like they're only in Europe, for example, or they're focused on you know, Africa or some of these other emerging areas like South America. But by and large, I think the Shopify competitors, including Shopify, big commerce, big cartel, some of these other players have fairly well established themselves. And so that's an area where there has been innovation, but I don't necessarily think there's going to be continued opportunity but in that same context, you know, in doing this sort of deep dive and understanding a lay of the land, there's a growing crop of what I call e-commerce infrastructure tools, which are supporting the motions of going to the store, getting to the store, purchasing, checking out, and then leaving the store. And those tools conceptually seem very interesting because they touch various parts of that value chain. The products can be used across a multitude of use cases. The Customers need these because they're literally the foundational layer. And so in taking that top-down approach, you sort of understand these are spots where I want to play. And then from there, you can hone in on, okay, what businesses are interesting? What companies are really doing really, really cool things within those segments? Um, the other aspect is sort of, I'd say, a bit more general in the sense that you can really just go broad and say, hey, I really like enterprise software for workflow automation just scour the internet or the world for every business that operates in that category and just figure out which ones are the best ones. Um, it's a bit more brute force, if you will, but um, different firms have different approaches. I've done different things over my career. I, I don't necessarily think one is better than the other, depending on what your angle is, but um, those are generally the most common ways. It's either take a perspective on the category and figure out where in the category you want to play or if it's at the margin or take a broad perspective on enterprise SaaS, for example, say this is an area I want to invest in, figure out what the best enterprise SaaS businesses are just across categories and then try to invest in those. And then from there, are you just taking a, a cold outreach approach or how do you actually get into conversation with some of these founders and CEOs? Yeah, it's a mix these days. I would say originally um, when I first started out in growth investing, it was very outbound driven. So emails, trying to just meet founders, reaching out, et cetera, et cetera. Over time, a few things happen. One, your network grows pretty organically. You end up meeting a bunch of people who are either other growth investors, early stage investors, or entrepreneurs. And so the ability to cultivate your network for warm introductions tends to grow. But um, two, also you are better able to leverage resources of other people that you work with. And so for us at Declaration, um, our anchor LP is David Rubenstein, who's one of the founders of the Carlisle Group. And obviously he's one of the most well-connected humans on the planet, I would argue. And it's very easy for him to get in front of someone who we think is worth speaking to. And so that's been a, a very nice leverage point for, for me in particular. But a lot of what I'm doing in terms of establishing touch points with entrepreneurs today is by virtue of introductions. Um, there is still an element. There's no one I know who is connected to a CEO, to a founder, to a management team. Then you know, sure, I think cold outreach is pretty fair game, but luckily there's been two things. One, the network piece, and then two, just being in the category long enough where 
you tend to know enough people who can usually within one or two degrees of connectivity get you in front of the person that you want to see. Awesome. And, and I guess you started off your career in, in the same space or very similar space doing software growth equity investing. So that probably helped you quite a bit going into this role and kind of maintaining that connection base. Yeah, it's been good. You know, I think it's one of those things where you don't necessarily realize while you're inside these roles and performing the day to day, how things compound over time. But, you know, you take a step back and I think I've had the fortune of being a bit more lucky than good and just meeting some of the right people at the right time. And, you know, over time that starts to, to pay dividends and be able to really see, I'd say the the flywheel effect generating from just meeting one or two people, those people tend to you know, meet other people who they can introduce you to, or they get promoted at their firms, or they're investing in XYZ portfolio companies. And um, you know, in this ecosystem, there's a relatively finite amount of really, really good businesses, and everyone wants to get involved in those. And so if you know the few players who are involved or who have generally good noses or good investment lenses, then it's a bit easier to get in front of them or you know, think through ways to collaborate or at least put your best foot forward. Mm -hmm. I guess on that note, you've been able to work your way up the rankings um, at a pretty young age and, and have uh, been able to, to really make an impact at the, the funds that you've been at so far. What did you do to put yourself ahead and get to the place that you are today, either in college or early in your career? I think it's been a few things. Um, one, definitely starting early and just taking a bet on myself in the context of believing that I wanted to do private investing and sort of angling my career and my experiences to really begin to learn about that and to really expand on my knowledge. Um, in undergrad, I was an internal transfer to the business school and effectively went from not knowing anything about finance to um, you know, helping to start a small seed stage venture capital fund now at the University of Maryland. Um, had several private equity internships during my junior and going into senior year, ended up interning at a um, big venture capital fund down in Maryland that was acquired last year that was sort of a launch pad for my full-time career. So I joined there right after undergrad, um, parlayed that into the growth firm that I was previously at, Lead Edge Capital, where I joined there in 2018. And they were um, pretty close with the venture capital fund. I had worked at Alpha Underground, so there was a, a good level of connectivity there, but it was really a bit of a snowball effect. You know, it, it started with just going into the business of the finance program, sort of eyes wide open, just trying to learn as much as I could, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And so putting myself out there, I ended up with my first internship by just cold calling or cold emailing a bunch of private equity firms and just asking about internship programs. And I was connected with a guy who was, University of Maryland alumni class of 2011 and 2012, who sort of just took a chance on the kid who didn't know anything about anything. And, you know, that was a really, really good launch pad for what I ended up being able to just learn over time, compound that knowledge and, you know, keep going back to the well and saying, okay, well, now I know X, Y, and Z, but how do I learn ABC and really sort of playing each experience off of each other and, and using those to, you know, create this sort of, somewhat unique career path. I, I think it's becoming more common now, but perhaps less so when I was an undergrad of the direct undergrad to VC or to private equity pipeline. I'm particularly at University of Maryland. I think now that's becoming perhaps a bit more viable, obviously to the extent that that's what 
undergrads and students are, are interested in, but I think it's something that people can definitely reach. And it's definitely something that is more within grasp than, than it was several years ago. Yeah, I think you made a really interesting move there, cold calling and reaching out to people and some that the listeners can kind of learn from, especially the younger listeners. When you're a young person, I think it's pretty easy to, to go out and, and get your your name in front of people. And, and I know for me, when I get emails from sophomores and freshmen, I'm much more inclined to answer them because it just shows that initiative at such a young age. And, and also it's a young person in general, and I want to help out that next generation. So um, really good move. And, and for all the younger people out there listening, definitely, um, you know, take that and, and, and try to use it to your advantage when, while you're trying to find different internships and, and career paths for yourself. Yeah, I think the undergrad students alumni outreach channel is vastly underutilized, but super powerful. Today, if I just cold outreach to Henry Kravis, for example, he's 100% going to ignore my email because there's no reason why he should respond. But if I'm an undergrad and I reach out to someone who went to my university, who's working in a field or a career that I want to work in, and you know, I approach it from the perspective of wanting to learn more and just, you know, being proactive and showing initiative, I think that goes a really, really long way. And to Max's point, I always make a point of responding, engaging with students or with, you know, younger people. I have a, a brother who's two years younger and I've spoken with a bunch of his friends or, you know, met a few of the people who he's gotten close with over the years. And I think it's, it's one of those things that, you know, perhaps it, it pays itself forward over time, but I think also, at the very least, you were in those shoes at one point or another as a younger professional or even as an older professional. And I think it's um, it's good to have things come full circle in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that actually I might have met you by either cold outreach or meeting you through your brother. So w- what advice would you give to 18-year-old Ray? That's a good question. Um, 18-year-old Ray wanted to go to law school and enter University of Maryland as a gov major on the pre-law track, I would tell him not to do that because it ended up not panning out and just not being something he was interested in. Um, I would also say he should be more open to what I was saying earlier, being uncomfortable earlier on. That was a behavior that I sort of learned not necessarily by force but by virtue of just realizing how little i actually knew and realizing that there was this whole new universe or you know set of sort of opportunities and careers and everything else that i was just not exposed to growing up or not aware of and so i think the sooner you can understand that and you know for what's worth kids these days or freshmen sophomores in college are much more knowledgeable about these careers than, than i ever was but i think for me if i look back on when I was 18, what could I have known or what should I have tried to learn? I think it's just that it's getting yourself out there sooner, being very open to learning things, being open to stepping outside of your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, realizing if you're, you're falling asleep in your Gov 101 class and Gov's probably not the right major for you, but uh, those things take a, a little more time to, uh, to fully bake out. <laughs> Are there any habits that you've had since you were young that you still swear by today? I know we talked about working out a little bit earlier, but anything else or maybe new ones that you've picked up that um, you think have really helped you accelerate or, or just live life in a, in a healthy and successful way? 
That's a good question. It's really been a mixed bag. I'd say I have trialed a bunch of new habits and routines and the conversion for what I actually end up keeping over the long term has been relatively low. But a few years ago, I began to read pretty frequently again. I was averaging one and a half to two books a month. That was, I think, a really good habit. Just you're knocking out 40, 50 pages before I go to bed at night or sort of finding things that I'm interested in. Um, at the time, I was really doing a bit of a trial by fire crash course into real estate investing. So a lot of what I was reading was you know real estate property ownership and investing related and how to navigate that market. But it was a really good way to just continuously learn something. I think once you get out into the professional world, you spend almost all of your time within your core job function. And so the ability to learn about different things starts to to taper off a little bit. And so I've been through either reading or you know, various other forms, trying to continuously learn about things that are just outside of my immediate workflow. Um, but also making sure that I'm continuing to get smart on the category and just putting myself in the best position to expand my knowledge base. I think with any investing role, you're never going to know everything there is to know, which um, is some of the exciting parts, but you do want to put yourself in the best position to know as much as you can at any given point. And whether that's about the immediate job function, whether it's about a category of investing that you're excited about, whether it's about something tangentially related, I just think that's helpful because your brain is similar to any other muscle. And so you do need that, that exercise, if you will. But outside of that, I think the one routine habit that I've kept with over the years is going back to the physical fitness point of just trying to remain active. And particularly in some of these roles, um, Max can attest to this, but the hours can be very long. You're, you're working a lot. And so you do need some ways to kind of just let some steam off and keep your body going and keep your body moving. Um, I think that can come about through a variety of ways, whether it's, you know, weightlifting, whether it's um, intramural leagues or, you know, other forms of sports or activities, but just having something that you can sort of either look forward to in the mornings or in the evenings that kind of helps to put your day into more specific blocks of time. That's been really useful for me. hundred percent. And from what I've seen, you also eat pretty healthy and, and put some pretty good stuff in your body as well. Is that right? Yeah, I have been loosely tracking my calories for a few years now, probably since senior year of college. And it, it really just goes back to the routine piece of you know, being able to just have some things to go back to. I, I don't want to say it's necessarily a focus on being data-driven, but I think it, it does help to just know where you're getting your food in from, you know, what you're eating. And at the end of the day, I think people understand this, but you don't realize it until you start to do it. But eating really good food just helps you feel better at the end of the day. And, you know, for some people who are working from, you know, 9 a.m. until midnight, um, you need to feel as good as you can. And so I think every little thing helps. And for me, it's been um, trying to dial in a bit on the healthy eating or, or just more so eating to fuel a longer lifestyle. I, I don't necessarily think of healthy eating per se, because I think that has a certain stigma of what's healthy versus what's unhealthy. But I think it's just finding foods and things that can fuel your body that you feel good about eating. And so for some people, it's, you know, 
steak or red meat or other forms of beef for others it's chicken or vegetables or everything else i think there's a baseline of what people need you know fruits veggies meat protein that sort of thing but outside that i think it, it is somewhat flexible and a, a bit more um case by case if you will do you do any supplements do you take any any of that stuff yeah um intermittently i for strength training specifically there's a, a creatine supplement that I, i've taken um Lots of vitamin D because I, I live in the Northeast and we don't get as much sunlight and particularly me working in the office, there are days where I don't see the sun. So vitamin D supplements are a must have for me. Um, I've taken a bunch of different things intermittently, fish oil and some other things. Um, there's a really good supplement I like called COQ10, which um, promotes, it, it basically helps lower the chances of heart disease, but it also has this added benefit of um, improved brain function or, or so it says. Um, I think it's really helpful, especially for some more high pressure jobs and environments. And that's something that I've been using. I was using it a bit in 2018, 2019, then sort of stopped and then started taking it again. Um, lately, I've been taking beef organ supplements, so like liver and, and that sort of thing, which has been pretty helpful. I, I think the effects that have been more immediate with that are sort of just around better mood, a bit more energy, um, lower stressors and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, outside of that, I, I do keep it pretty simple. I think a lot of it you can find in your, in your nutrition, but, um, there's certainly a lot of really, really good supplements that, that people should adopt. And, you know, I think supplementation is something that in today's society you need more than ever because of, you know, how the food has sort of transitioned from being perhaps a bit more pure, um, the supplements, I think, are just a good way to make sure you're putting yourself again in the best position to succeed. I wanted to, to touch back here a little bit. You mentioned uh, reading a lot of real estate books recently, uh, and, and I know that you might have made an investment recently. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I um, in mid-2020, in Q2 of 2020, I had purchased um, a four-unit apartment building in Laurel. Maryland. So I, I grew up in the Maryland area in Andrew County. And this property in particular is in the Laurel sits across three counties, um, Andrew Lapid, Gene Howard, but this one is in the city of Laurel. And this was my first real estate purchase ever. My parents have a background in, in real estate. And so I have seen them you know, go through the aspects of rent to rehab, property management, um, fix and flipping, a little bit of everything. And for me, I was looking for a way to dip my toe in the water. You can argue that this is more so just jumping in as opposed to dipping a toe, but ended up purchasing that property in, in 2020 and have been on a slightly COVID derailed mission of you know rehabbing and fixing that up, getting it rent ready. And actually we just rented out the last unit about a week and a half ago. So the, the property is now fully occupied. Um, We'll be cash flowing pretty nicely once we get um, everyone's rent in for first of the month and everything. And the idea there is to buy something that's an appreciating asset or you know, hopefully an appreciating asset in the market that's a bit more blue collar, but has a, a safe state base of employees and, and people coming in and out. It's it's very close to major highways, I-95, for those familiar with the Maryland area and um you know, a good way to perhaps begin to acquire some generational assets or, or things that you can hold on to for a very long time. Um, there's also the, the tax benefits of, you know, 
depreciation, interest expense, and then those sorts of things, which are important for some folks. But for me, it was really just beginning to start what could become a small to moderate sized real estate portfolio of semi-passive income. I think there's a misconception that real estate investing is completely passive because I think it is not really the case unless you're buying something that's turnkey and already has a tenant involved and you don't have to do any of the rehab and repairs. But it's been a it's been a fun experience. I think there's there's lots of learnings to be had from that. But it is something where unlike a stock or a crypto portfolio, you know, you can drive by the building and you know point to true physical ownership. And I, I think that still has some some merit in today's society despite most things transitioning to online or to a, a digital presence. That's awesome. And and this was a, a four unit, right? A four unit. Yep. Okay. And and what type of mortgage did you get for that? Would, was it an investment property? Did you purchase it under an LLC? How did you structure structure it? Yeah. So it's an investment property. Um, generally with that, you're looking at conventional mortgages where you can put... Um, it's really going to vary state by state and situation by situation, but you know, anywhere from seven to 10% to 20% down on the higher end. And the idea here is that um, this will be something that once I, I rehab and once it's fully rented out, which it is now, you can um, go through the process of refinancing, um, have the property appraised at a higher value, lower your mortgage payment over time, and increase your cash flow. Um, I purchased it in my name in particular. So I, I do have an LLC created around it, but I've just been a little lazy about transitioning the deed over to the LLC. It was just some courthouse paperwork I had to fill out and some other things. And it was mostly just waiting for the rehab because it's a bit easier for someone to pull permits and pull deeds and see that Ray Joyce is on the deed and you're speaking to Ray Joyce about the rehab versus, hey, here's this LLC. Okay, who's this guy? Where's the involvement? And so on and so forth. So for me, it was a, a little easier there, but now that everything is approaching, I suppose, steady state is what you could call it, then now I can think about you know, more protective provisioning around placing the property in an LLC or in a trust and then sort of just continuing to, to roll forward there. Uh, you talked about rehabbing the home. That's something that I've never done before. I, I have two properties, but I've never ventured into that realm. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the keys to success for you uh, and then maybe the timeline that, that it took to, to get it from purchase to a place now where you have it fully rented out? Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll caveat by saying this is a, a bit nuanced in that I purchased the property and there were um, three tenants living in it at that time. And so there's been a bit of a tenant reshuffling in the context of, you know, some folks have moved out. You've had, I've had to move some folks around to rehab other units and so on and so forth. But um, I'd say keys to success for rehab and renovation. It's a few things. One, having a really good um, general contractor who's kind of the, the project manager and someone that you know and you trust or that is just very highly recommended who can be very helpful and just keep everything in mind. Inevitably, with rehab, something's going to go wrong and things are going to drag out longer than the proposed timeline. And so it's really making sure there's this North Star that you're working towards and there's this end goal and sort of specific sets of phases where you want to have certain pieces complete. And so for me, the phases end up being unit by unit. So I want to have one unit completed in you know, 
a month or less. And then from there, sort of approach property-wide rehab. So there were things that occurred, such as putting in a new hot water heater system or you know, fixing the legacy plumbing for the building as a whole or repairing um, flooring and the stairways and sort of the common areas and, and those sorts of things. And so breaking it up into phases was really helpful for me, but also just having a good team of contractors and folks who can be boots on the ground. Um, I live in New York City full-time. And so going down to Maryland for more supervisory roles for the property isn't necessarily the most convenient, but definitely something that you have to do or you should do as part of that process. If there isn't someone who is boots on the ground, you can visit the property as often as, as you would like to. And so I'd say it's really just surrounding yourself with people that you trust to do good work who can sort of follow a certain timeline. But at the end of the day, with contractors, you sometimes never know what you're going to get. And especially coming out of COVID, these people were so busy. I had instances where we would order parts or supplies and the contractor has to wait three and a half weeks to actually go to the job site because there are six other things that he's been working on since pre-COVID. And so I'd say it was definitely lengthened by COVID, um, both on the material side, uh, prices of ordering things, timelines for materials to ship and, and to actually arrive, but also on the labor side. And so you just have to be aware that things won't really go as planned. I'd say try to be try to be as thoughtful as you can when it comes to forecasting a budget and, and what you expect it to cost. We went over budget as most projects do, but you know, luckily I had an idea in my mind of roughly what I wanted to spend on rehab on a per unit basis and sort of at the aggregate level. And so while we went over somewhat moderately on that front, it was still roughly in line with this range that I had said, okay, I'm fine with paying up to X and at least, and you know, on the minimum at X sub one. And so those were, I'd say the, the big things around having systems and, and having processes in place. But, uh, it's really, you know, rehabbing a property and going through that process, um, you really end up wearing so many different hats and, you know, it's everything from picking out designs for certain areas, um, a bathroom, for example, I want the units to thinking about layouts and orientations for a kitchen or for a living room. And so it's a really good way to get very involved in every aspect of real estate. And for those who may be more design oriented or really like getting into the weeds on the details, um, you very much have to do so on, on the rehabbing front, but you know, at the same time, you also have to take that 30,000 foot view of understanding um, where things are going at the end state and, and what that end state actually looks like. That's great advice. Should, should everyone be investing in real estate? I think it depends. Um, it again, isn't as passive as it's marketed to be. And so the, the people who should be investing in real estate are, they fall into two buckets. Um, either A, you have a good amount of um, cash that you can sort of put into a property from an investment perspective, or B, you are just starting out and don't have that much cash, which they sound like very different ends of, of the barbell, but I'll explain in a bit more detail. So for, for those who have more disposable cash to put into investment property, you can be a bit more hands-off than you likely will be because it's more so a function of labor, time, materials, cost money, 
you don't want to spend more than X, you can budget for up to X in terms of these materials and then back into everything from there. Um, and at the end of the day, if there's something that goes wrong or you want to bring in a property manager or the like, then you can sort of just hire out that job function. For folks who don't have that much capital or who are just starting out, there's this concept of house hacking, which I think is really, really great for people. Um, mostly not in New York because I just don't think the opportunity exists in, in New York City, but effectively you purchase a property or maybe you and some friends can purchase a property and you live in one or a few of the rooms there and then rent out the others. And so the idea is that you charge enough rent that either covers most or all of your mortgage payment, or some people have been able to charge enough rent that covers the entire their mortgage payment, and you're effectively just living for free. And so you end up building equity over time um, while also generating from also generating appreciation on the property and cash flow for yourself. And from there, you can sort of think about many of the options I was just discussing. It's, you know, refinancing, you can pull cash out of the property, you can leverage that to purchase another investment property. And so that's, I think, a really good point in time to, to get started. Um, generally, people should have some real estate allocation, although in today's markets, it's very, very difficult just because prices have been pretty insane. And it's been really hard to find, I'd say, really good deals that are either under market or that are somewhat proprietary. Agreed. Agreed on that. Do you think something like Fundrise or uh, REITs or um, anything like that would be helpful for people who might not have enough money or uh, enough time necessarily to, to maybe bridge that gap and still have some sort of allocation into real estate? Yeah, I think so. Um, a lot of these different crowdfunding sources or ability to sort of invest as part of a consortium are really useful ways to just get involved at a baseline. At the end of the day, you won't be able to generate as much return for yourself if you don't directly own the property or have that direct exposure. So it does lower what becomes an annual yield if you think about real estate allocation. But in terms of learning and time, I think those are, are really good options. But it's going to depend on every person's situation. I have a bunch of friends in New York, Max included, who own properties in Maryland. And you know, some of them are property managers, some of them manage them themselves. And it, it doesn't end up being, once it's up and running, it doesn't end up being a tremendous lift. But obviously, it can be pretty daunting going into it from the first time with either no background or, or very little background. That's a good point. Um, are there any books podcasts or other resources that you would recommend the listeners to explore to help them learn more about some of the topics that we went through today, anything on, you know, private equity, real estate, investing more generally, maybe habits and goals and, and, and living a successful life, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. On the real estate front, I'd say the biggest resource that's website podcast oriented is probably biggerpockets.com. Um, those guys just do an awesome job of talking about everything from house hacking to buying a multifamily property to buying mobile home parks to commercial or industrial real estate. And you can go from ground zero to learning enough to actually go and pursue your first transaction relatively quickly there. On the private equity front, um, it's really variable. You know, I think it depends on what people are interested in. I spend most of my time, as the conversations alluded to, in technology and then software investing. And so in that regard, I'm spending a lot of time looking at um, 
publications and, and tech crunch sort of understanding what early stage venture capital funds are, are doing, reading some of the thought pieces that they put out. There's a bunch of really, really good growth equity funds here in New York and otherwise that are generally pretty thoughtful and then have some, some good pieces. And so I would implore people to, to think about those sorts of firms. Um, even on the West Coast, you have early stage firms that become growth oriented, like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or some of these others. Um, here on the East Coast, um, the biggest growth fund in New York is Insight Partners. Um, they just have a massive portfolio of probably every software business you have or haven't heard of. Um, and, and those guys are, are generally pretty smart people. But there's a bunch of publications. There's a firm called Iconic, which is the family office of Eric Schmidt from Google, Mark Zuckerberg, and a few others. They publish some thought pieces pretty regularly. Those are, are generally good reads. Um, most funds have some blog presence or web presence. And so if there are things listeners are interested in on particular topics within technology, I would say the broad consortium of funds will usually have material there, but TechCrunch is a good place to start. Um, VentureBeat, VentureWire, there's a newsletter that goes out called Axios Pareta, which I just get delivered to my inbox every day through the week. That's really helpful to understand what's going on from a deal activity. But, um, you know, the the benefit and the drawback of technology is that there's so many different ways to think about that category. And so everyone can have their own perspective or their own niche or their own areas of, of focus over time. Um, and then for private equity and in general, I'd say, again, it's a, it's a bit of a broad bucket, but lots of web forums, blogs, um, Wall Street Oasis is a, a really interesting website that just has a bunch of people who are in or around private equity, investment banking, et cetera, just weighing in on firms, culture, compensation, all the other things, all the, the details that you know, can make a big difference for some people. And they also have courses. So for those who want to really understand what it's like to be in these roles and to perform in the day-to-day, Wall Street Oasis has some really interesting courses around private equity, around venture capital specifically, um, and a few others. And so those are some of the resources I would say there's, you know, clearly a long tail of them that you know, Max and I haven't discussed yet, but that should hopefully get folks started. And obviously, if there are ones that they're looking for in particular on a certain topic, then that can, can probably be helpful there. Absolutely. That's a, that's a helpful list. And I've certainly taken down a couple of those as well as use some of those. Uh, Bigger Pockets is a huge one for me. Um, Axios Pro Rata also has some really good content. Um, so, I mean, with that being said, Ray, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I think I learn a lot every time we catch up and and love your company. So thank you for joining. Um, To the listeners, if you liked what you heard today or learned something, please like, comment, subscribe, share, anything you can do to help us grow. It means a lot. Uh, Growth Chats is a new podcast and, and we would love to help more people learn and grow and create the life they want for themselves and hopefully learn from people like Ray. So Ray, thanks again. And listeners, thank you as well. Take care. Thanks, Max. Great to be on.